0: I want to show you a video that someone sent me this week and I'm not going to put my stamp of approval on it, but I think there is value whether he be right or wrong, whether this be legitimate or not legitimate. I'm going to tell you this, that normally when I hear somebody has a dream, I'll put about 5% credibility, honestly, if that because I think it has been so abused throughout our society and culture that we I always hear you know the Lord told me this and the Lord told me that and I just think that oftentimes it's it's what a thought that came to their own mind it's their own desires that they're chasing after whatever and it's so hard to tell whether it was really God telling them this or not and so I I rarely put a lot of credibility into dreams like that. Now, I, I told you a few weeks ago that years ago I had a dream that I personally felt was from the Lord. And I didn't go and, you know, try and tell the world about it necessarily, but it was something that he gave me. I think it was true. It lined up with Scripture. It wasn't new information, but it was an encouragement to me. And because of that dream, which it may not mean anything to you, but it does to me, there were similarities in this man's dream that made me give it a little bit more credibility. Also, his humbleness. He's not going to come out and say, the Lord told me this. He even says, I'm not a prophet. Maybe I ate something before I went to bed that I shouldn't have eaten. I don't know. If, if this doesn't come, then it's not of the Lord You know, call me crazy. I like that humble spirit about it as well. Another thing that, so that kind of made it a little more credible to me as well. And then the timing of his dream is going to be around the Feast of Tabernacles that part of this is going to take place. And if you look at history, many major, major events throughout history take place on festival days, the Lord's festivals. Okay, so that, for me, gives it a little more credibility. And finally, just what's already been in my spirit, without any timeline put to it, this is lining up with it, which gives it even more credibility. So that gets me to about 50% credibility, maybe, maybe a little more that I will put on to this. Time will tell regardless though like I said let's say that this what I'm about to show you is not of the Lord I think that there's a value in it that I think that it's going to hopefully help people wake up and take some things more seriously and that's part of what this message is going to be tonight and so I thought this was also very fitting to show so just watch this video here
1: Hey this is Dana Coverstone I'm a pastor I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a patriot, I love this country. And uh, I can confirm the first part of what I'm about to tell you because I told some men at a prayer group uh, back in December, second or third week of December. I want to share three specific dreams that I've had recently, uh, going back to December, two that I've had this week, both, both Monday and last night, Monday and Tuesday night. Because I believe, number one, they are prophetic. Uh, The first one that I had has come explicitly true based on the events of March through June, the month in which we're living. And uh, I do not claim to be a prophet by any means. I understand, though, that some dreams and visions by their nature have a prophetic tendency to them. But I do believe I've seen things, uh, both that have happened, as relevant by the first dream that I had, and some things that I've seen recently. So you can take what I'm about to say with a grain of salt. You can pray about it. You can think about it. Uh, but I believe that I have a warning uh, for the country, a warning for rural America, a rural, uh, a, a, a warning for America overall. But here's what happened. Back in December, I woke up, I had a dream. And in that dream, I saw a calendar starting January 2020. And it was being flipped. And I saw January, I saw February, I saw March. And when March came up, the hand held it, and I saw the thing, a finger underline the month of March, and then tap it three times. So underlined the month of March, tapped it three times. So to me it was emphasis. Something's going to happen in March. And then I saw April, May, June. And when June came, the hand underlined June again and tapped it three times. Then in the vision, I saw people marching, I saw protests, I saw people wearing masks, I saw lines going into hospitals, I saw... Um, typical medical doctors with needles or, 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 or syringes. I saw people on ventilators. I saw people who were very, very sick, very, very ill. I saw newspaper headlines trumpeting thousands of people getting sick. I saw um, ambulances just flying down roads. I, and then I saw, I saw cities on fire. I saw buildings being burned. I saw protesters with masks. Uh, I saw people who were, had their fists in the air, people who were yelling and screaming. Angry as at just at the world. <clears throat> I saw courthouses. I saw state houses surrounded. I saw people who were mad at the world. Uh, I saw I saw guns, shotguns specifically put in the air, held like this. And I saw barriers within cities. Um, I told several men in my church about this, and I can confirm who those men were. And they'll confirm that what I'm telling you is what I told them. I saw absolute chaos. And the other thing I saw was vultures flying over large cities. Not just the ones that were burning, but I saw vultures flying over the cities. And I saw smoke rising. And I saw I saw people fearful. I saw people terrified. I saw people inside their homes and looking out the windows, the curtains of their windows and with guns in their hands because there was absolute fear. Then I heard the words, brace yourself. Brace yourself. So since December, I've been hearing those words, brace yourself. Brace yourself. Uh, January, February came, didn't seem too much. I reminded the men of the dream, and then in March, boom, COVID 19 hit. And things started shutting down. Churches were shut down, business was shut down, the economy shut down. Uh, then we began to see the protests starting in, Mar- in May in Minneapolis, and all those things began to go on. So where we are at the end of the primary election here in Kentucky. And now there's talk of more shutdowns. I just heard the governor. Uh, talk about schools opening back up and things of that nature. But the things that I saw in a dream and vision back in December are the same things that I watched in the news almost every day since March through June. All this time I kept hearing, brace yourself, brace yourself. Um, I spend time in prayer. I spend time in the Word. I'm a pastor. And it's not just my job. It's something that I enjoy doing. I love doing. And I'm very interested in the news around the world. I read 40 newspapers a day from all around the world. I, I keep up with news uh, in other parts of the, of, of, the, of the nations, better than sometimes than I hear here, because it's hard to know who to trust. But I get news from all over the world, all around the world, from both liberal and conservative sources. Um, I'm very well-read. I'm very understanding of how nations work. i uh, traveled quite a bit, and I'm not just making these things up. I can confirm what I have said. And with that in mind, on Monday night, I had another dream. And it woke me from my bed, I made notes about it, I shot some video of myself, just making sure I can remember. But here's what I saw. I saw a calendar, it started with a calendar. And as I was having this, the calendar was up, a white figure appeared. And it, 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 to me, it was it was a rep- representing God, the Holy Spirit, something pure, something righteous, something true, something holy. Because there was nothing um, nothing sinister about it, nothing evil. But I heard the voice say part two, part two. And I saw June go up. I saw July, I saw August, and then I saw September. And I saw the finger underneath the word September, like, like emphasizing it, and tapped it three times. And then I saw October come up. And then I saw November. And this is when it got real to me in the dream. I think the intensity, uh, according to my Fitbit, when I woke up, my heart rate was about 180 So that was Monday night. It was also a night that I woke up not feeling very well at all. I was up during the night not feeling well. But anyway, the minute the finger underlined November three times, instead of tapping it, I saw a fist ball up and it hit the calendar. And literally, the calendar exploded into the wall. The numbers seemed like they were 3D and they were just flying everywhere. And there was a cloud of chaos that started. And then the next thing I saw was I saw... I saw armed protesters. I saw fighting in the streets. I saw people pummeling one another. I saw businesses shuttered and shut up. I saw I saw schools closed. I saw schoolrooms with cobwebs hanging in them, and like things like papers falling off the wall and posts that felt like no one had been in them for months. I saw banks bank buildings with the roofs being taken off. It looked almost like alien abduction because money was just flying through the roof into some type of, like a vacuum cleaner. It sounds kind of strange, but I was watching wealth just being taken. I saw politicians in back rooms uh, making deals with people, pat, you know, patting people on the back and, and laughing and smiling and smirking. And I saw monuments. I saw, I saw Washington, D.C. burning I saw Washington DC blazing. I saw fires everywhere. I saw people being rounded up. I saw Chinese and Russian soldiers on the ground. And Russian soldiers were telling the Chinese soldiers to go and pick up these people, round up these people, secure this quadrant, secure this area. I saw blue helmets of the UN. I saw military things taking place. I also saw no sign of President Trump I saw no sign of leadership in Washington, D.C. But the vultures that I had seen were now like gargoyles, and they were 10 feet off the ground, 10 to 15 feet off the ground. And they were just attacking people mercilessly. I saw people hiding in their homes and garages. I saw churches being burned. I saw homes being burned. I saw absolute chaos. And the fist punch on the November of 2020 is what got my attention. And then I heard the words again, brace yourself, brace yourself, brace yourself. That has been something that I have heard for almost almost seven. Well seven months now. Starting once we get to July, it's going to be seven months. Um, and once again I'm not claiming to be a prophet. I'm not claiming proclaim you know, just let's well, see what happens in November through November and see if I'm right about this. But I know when I hear God's voice, I know, what, I know how, what God's voice sounds like to me. I know when he speaks. I know when I had a dream that I know is him. And the things that I was saying, I don't say this to scare people, but I say this to warn people that there are some pretty sinister things coming down the pike. And not just for the lost, but for God's people as well. Uh, the second dream I had last night, and it woke me up, uh, in this dream, uh, we just had a yard sale to help fund a, a team going to Ecuador this next year and we had a yard sale and i had asked my secretary to get us some change for that secretary for that for that yard sale so in the dream that i'm having i walk to the bank i walk into the bank to get some change and on the door it says there's no change available i saw the sign it registered in my mind And i walked on in and the president of the local bank was at the teller station and she, had, she was going to be taking care of business. And I said, I need to get 10 dollars quarters for yard sale. And she said, I'm sorry, but the U.S. Mint is no longer making currency or making change, like pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters, half dollars. We're not doing that anymore. I said, like, well, what do you mean? She said, they stopped doing it. And I said, well, how are we going to be able to charge fifty for anything? And she said, prepare for hyperinflation and just charge $2.00. And then she said to me in the dream, oh, and by the way, $1 and $5 bills will follow soon after that. And then I heard those words, brace yourself, brace yourself, brace yourself. And I woke up, I wrote these things down. Um, I've never gone on video and recorded the dreams that I've had. And I, I hesitated to not do the one I had back in December. But everything I saw, and that dream in December came true between March and June. When in, the, in, in the dream I was showed, March through June. And so I don't think I would be doing uh, anyone a service if I don't share what I saw in these dreams and visions. And I believe that we're going to see not just a second huge wave of COVID between September, October, November. but We're going to see major things with the elections. We're going to see major chaos in our country. We're going to see troops in our cities. We're going to see the protests get even worse. We're going to see buildings burn. We're going to see what well, could only lead to civil war in this country.
0: There's about four minutes left or so, but he's just going to basically, you know, say, maybe I you know, ate something, whatever. Um, I know that Noah had messaged him to, to try and confirm the elders. And that there was a a video that the elders put out to confirm that he had said that he had that first dream back in December and that they had been told that, at least in their church. And so time will tell, but again, my purpose in showing you this is at the very least for us to brace ourselves spiritually that we need to really take what's going on in our country seriously I asked Eden I think it was Tuesday or something like that I said I wonder how many people have been fasting because for the last three weeks or better everywhere I've been going I have been saying we need to be praying we need to be fasting. We need to be praising God. We need to be in our Bibles. And I said, I'm going to ask this one, this uh, next Bible study, how many people have actually fasted? And if you're willing, how many of you have fasted in the last three weeks? Okay. So two people. Two people. And Eden and I did too. But, so I guess I would be four and Noah. So three of them are in my family. <laughs> I say that not to shame you, not to be boastful on our end, but to illustrate a point. I still don't think we get it. I don't think we really get it. Remember Jeremiah who said, these people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I'm not saying that you guys are ungodly or that you know my family's ungodly or anything like that what I'm saying is is that I don't think that we really have internalized the seriousness of the spiritual battle that is going on and it might take what this guy is talking about for us to get there and that's really why I decided I am going to show this video tonight that and I just thought in my spirit, I'm feeling there's some very real possible credibility to this, and I can't, in good conscience, not at least have it given to you so that you can store it in the back of your mind and be praying as well. When you fast? Do you do a, like days at a time, meals at a time. Well, on do do like Wednesday, Eden and I fasted all the way till seven in the evening, which, and then on Thursday, I fasted all the way until Friday, like 1 o'clock. So you,
1: like a day or a
0: day and a half at a time? Yeah, oh, or sometimes two days. But it's kind of between you and the Holy Spirit. It's, yeah, there, there is no... I think here's the key. The key, God isn't so concerned how many hours you fast or what day it is that you're fasting, as much as it is that you are denying the flesh... And every time when I fast, what I do is every time I feel that hunger pain, every time I would see my family eating something else, if my wife or something came up on TV late at night, everything looked good. I saw the, the celery stick being dipped in peanut butter on a commercial, and that looked great. Okay? That's the only time that looks great. And, but it caused me to go to prayer every time, and that's what it is it's to deny our flesh because I believe that when our flesh is strong our spirit is weaker our spirit is strongest when our flesh is weakest and so I'm not going to make this a fasting message as much as to say we we need to take this seriously some things are going on and uh, I just don't think we really have internalized it so, time will tell on this. I know, you know, afterwards, if you want to, what, what should you do? What what would what, what, what you do? Well, again, I could say, well, yeah, I think it's wise for people to store up food. Go buy some food at Walmart and cans or or whatever. Be prepared. I'd say that to anybody, regardless of it. As a matter of fact, I've been saying that for years, that you should be prepared. Have you know, your cans that you rotate out or whatever. That's just wisdom. Joseph was warned that there was a famine coming. They prepared. We see Agabus in, in Jerusalem was warned of a fa- uh, famine coming to Jerusalem in the New Testament. So they made up an offering. They, they were preparing. God has told us in his word, there's a time coming when you will not be able to buy or sell food, or buy or sell, period. And so I'm saying, well, I believe God, so I'm going to be prepared. It might not happen in my lifetime, but I'm going to take his word seriously, and if it doesn't, fine. I mean, I've wasted money on far stupider things, (laughs) you know? And so, from a worldly perspective, I think, yeah, it is good to prepare But the real preparation that needs to take place isn't that. It is our spiritual well-being. It is standing up for truth. It is praying and fasting and getting right with God and diving into that word and letting him speak to us. Because I am convinced that at that point, when we do that, when it's not the world 90% of the time or 98% of the time and then God the rest of our week, that you're going to hear from God and he will direct you what you need to do when you need to do it. And if the ravens have to come and feed me, he will. There may be some of you who have all kinds of money to invest in food. And you could get your four years of food provided. And there are some of us who don't have that. And you're only going to be able to have maybe a month of food saved up. I don't think that the guy that's got four years of food prepared is in any better position as the person who has one month. If you've both been wise and you've done what you can within your means and you're not trusting in your own merits to get you through this, God's going to be there for you. Okay, And so, don't let the worldly aspect of this become your driving force, your fear. Let the spiritual aspect of this be what drives you. If that makes sense. Yeah. So... I'll leave it at that for now. If you want to talk more about it later, we can. But I I just wanted to include that because this is going to kind of play into it a little bit tonight with what we're talking about here in Hebrews. Hebrews 6, verse 9. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner... For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now, what he says here, if you kind of look back, though we speak in this manner, he's admitting that in previous chapters and previous verses there, he's kind of been scaring them a little bit. He's been warning them. And he's been putting the fear of God in their hearts. And I think that is, as we've talked about, a good thing to have the fear of God. We need to have that. That we can't be walking in, in confidence of our flesh. That at any time, the devil can come and tempt us and we can go astray. And so he goes on, though, to say, but God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. So basically, remember this, as the world goes by, as it is easy for Satan to spin a deception as we are living out right now and make you ask, why am I doing this? What good? I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard even in the last couple of weeks how many people have said, you know, I, feel, I pray but sometimes I just feel like, what good is it doing? What good is it doing? There's Satan's deception, spinning that lie right there making you feel like prayer doesn't help because we don't see results when we want to see them, or how we expect to see them. But I'm telling you, like I spoke yesterday, there at the river, Daniel says, the moment that you began your prayer, God heard and sent Gabriel to Daniel. The moment he started praying. Hezekiah said, because you prayed, God came. Prayer is is effective and it's the devil who wants to spin that deception say what am i doing what's the point of all this and we're going to look at other verses here because it looks like when others prosper and you're not prospering that they're doing something right and you're doing something wrong and this is what he's saying god is not unjust And it would be unjust. God can't be unjust, but it would be unjust for him to forget your work and your labor, your faithfulness to him. In other words, he cannot be unjust. Therefore, your work, your labor, your faith is going to be rewarded. Brace yourself. There's a message of hope right there in that one sentence. He says, you've ministered to the saints, and you do minister. You're continuing to do this, so don't lose hope. Malachi 3, verse 13 says, Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord, yet you say, what have we spoken against you? You've said, it is useless to serve God. What profit is that? Is it that we have kept his ordinance, and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts, so now we call the proud blessed for those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and go free. Last few weeks, those have been thoughts that have gone my head. You know, we've talked about the wickedness in government, the wickedness in Hollywood, the things that are going on that, you know, in the most grotesque, evil, disgusting, vile things that we can imagine that are going on with these rich Powerful people. That's exactly what verse 15 is saying here. We call the proud blessed. These arrogant, power-hungry people, those who do wickedness, they're raised up. They're even tempting God. They mock him. Well, we we, we shouldn't have those thoughts. It's natural that we do, but we shouldn't. But I've been there. And he says it's useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept his ordinances, that we've followed him? Now, I can't say that I necessarily feel that, but at times maybe it's like, boy, you feel like you should be blessed more, that God should give you this or that, because, hey, I'm faithful. I've been obeying you, God, and, you know, this person's rich, but I'm not. Why not? problems. Yeah. More money, more problems. You see, that's putting our hope in something that isn't true. That's a lie. That money is going to be success. I mean, any of the disciples, Jesus Himself. Jesus said, "Foxes have holes, or foxes have dens, right? How does it? Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. That's what it is. Yeah, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head." And I think partly why we have not prioritized and taken what we've been talking about seriously is because we're still pretty comfortable. And we need to be shaken before that's going to happen, where we internalize it. Um, There's a story of a missionary. uh, Daniel Joseph talked about this, that a missionary, a husband and wife, they come home back to the States after being gone for years and, and in the jungles and whatnot. And when they got there there was nobody there to to receive them, nobody there to have, you know, a little party for them or anything like that. And the husband said, What was the point of all of this? And his wife said, Well, we're not home yet. And that what a beautiful illustration. This is not home. Nothing that the world has to offer us is home. Our eyes are supposed to be fixed on home, but we're not there yet. David had these same thoughts. David, remember he said that his foot had almost slipped when he saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now here's a man, David, who, I don't know what at what point in his life that he was saying this, but David had everything. Maybe it was a point when he was running from Saul that he's thinking this, I don't know. But this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to protect us from here. That it isn't useless to serve God. There is a prophet to doing this, but it's not here, it's when we get to heaven. Hebrews 6.11 goes on, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end that you do not become sluggish but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise This word sluggish here is kind of an interesting word because it was used only one other time and that was back in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 11 and I've got it up here for you, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That word sluggish, is it has to do with our faith. It isn't just like I'm tired all the time. This has to do with our faith and our relationship with the Lord. Yeah, spiritually lazy. It's saying, if you say, what has this all been for? What good is it to, to serve God? What good is it to pray? What good is it to stand up against this Black Lives Matter and all this other nonsense going on? What good is it? Well, the result of that is you become dull of hearing or sluggish. Lazy. lazy. And so he's saying, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. Keep that faith so that, because otherwise, or else, you could put it all out. you're going to become sluggish. You're going to become dull of hearing. So, this is kind of what I was saying. I've been saying fast. Pray we need to do it because, guys, it will matter. It is going to do something. We may not get to see the results that day, that week, maybe not even in this lifetime. I don't know. But I'm telling you, don't grow weary. And if you fail to do that, you know what's going to happen? You grow sluggish. I know I've seen that in my life when there are times when I've always followed the Lord. I, I It's not like I've turned my back on him, but there are certainly times that I have not been chasing after him. And when I don't do that for a while, I become sluggish and dull of hearing. I'm not hearing his direction in my life. I'm not uh, filled with joy and peace among the trials. well I think a little of both I pray for specific things sometimes I'm praying that our country would be brought to repentance I'm confessing that our country has turned their back on you as a whole I'm confessing even as churches our churches have compromised and turned their back on God as a whole I have confessed that we have not followed you like you have asked us to follow you in your word that we have become lazy and we do things the way we want to do it not the way you've asked us to do it And so I do get specific. I I pray for my family, but I do. I pray a lot for wisdom, understanding, peace, and comfort. Now, comfort not in this world, but comfort in Him. And this is the thing. If any of you are feeling scared with what's going on in this world right now, what that means is, is that there's something lacking in your relationship with Yeshua right now. Doesn't mean you're not a Christian. Doesn't mean that you don't know him. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is, is there's something missing in it. I can be married to my wife and not communicate with her for a couple of months and what kind of relationship am I going to have? Not a very good one. Okay. We'll still be married. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) But you see the point is that This is how we communicate with our bridegroom. We need to be in prayer. We obey him. We follow him. We we worship him. We uh, fast. And when we do that and you communicate, when I communicate with my wife, it's a much better marriage. It's a peaceful one in the home not an irritable one. You see, and this is what it is with God. I, I remember when I was in high school being afraid of, of death. Not just dying, but death. Afraid of all kinds. Of, afraid of going to war. You know, things like that, that if I would ever get drafted. or I mean, I could have found a thousand and one things to be you know, afraid of. And the more that I have chased after God, the more those fear, I don't care. Shoot me. It doesn't matter. There is a peace and a comfort and, that, that comes over us the closer we draw to God. Now, don't get me wrong, next week I could be scared to death for something if my focus gets back on me and not the Lord. Because my strength doesn't come from me, it comes from Him. But when I say you need to be fasting and praying it isn't just so that this world is turned around the United States is going to be returned to repentance a lot of it is for you individually that you will find peace and comfort and it doesn't matter what goes on in this world that you will be like Paul and he says that I have found learned to be content in all situations a guy who had been shipwrecked out in the open sea had been beaten, flogged, drugged out of town, left for dead all of these things, is the guy who's saying, I've learned to be content. i got a good life. That's part of the reason we fast and pray. If God is ready to take our country down, he is just in doing it. We deserve it. But if he does it, not only is he not unjust he is also not unloving he's doing it for our own good i talked on saturday at the river there that i think it was this saturday i don't remember now it might have been last saturday but just that when the babylonians were coming to conquer hezekiah and jerusalem when they do finally get there they were taken in jeremiah saying hey it's coming you need to listen You need to surrender. God wasn't doing it because he hated Israel. He was doing it because he loved Israel because that's what Israel needed because they refused to repent. They refused to humble themselves, fast and pray and seek God with their whole heart. And so he took them to a place where they would have to do that. So if destruction comes to our country, it's not because God didn't answer your prayer. It's because he is answering your prayer. He loves you. And he's trying to do what is best for His people, for the bride. You can be sure of that because that's His promise. So, don't become sluggish. How do you not become sluggish? By not saying, it has. this has been a waste of my time following the Lord, tithing. It's been a waste of my time you know, uh, standing up and putting these posts on Facebook. It's been a waste of my time praying, whatever. Let me show you Romans 15 basically uh, shows you this point as well in verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. All these examples that we can look at in the Old Testament They were given to you as an example because his faithfulness does not change. I know this Saturday we did talk there at the river. When Hezekiah came and he prayed, or the Assyrian army came and Hezekiah prayed, because of his prayer, 185,000 of the Assyrian armies were wiped out by God. That's an example that we should learn from and find comfort in. James 5.10, My brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed to endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Just what I'm saying. You see, you heard the suffering of, of Job, but what was his end? Even more than he had before his end was for his glory that's what God wanted for him so the word is giving us this endurance that we need and when we focus on that when we study that when we meditate upon that it keeps us from getting dull and sluggish you might say Job is in our support group alright Hezekiah is in our support group Daniel Daniel Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, Ahab, or not Ahab, uh, Rahab. (laughs) We could go on and on and on. Galatians 6.9, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. This is exactly what Hebrews is saying. Nothing new. You know, Peter said Christ suffered in his flesh, so arm yourselves also. If we're going to be followers of Christ, we're supposed to follow what he did. Well, he didn't go after the cares of this world. He did what his father wanted him to do. Moving on to verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained The promise. I think that there's a number of things that we could look at, but one of them is that I think the writer is drawing from Genesis 22 here, where Abraham was to sacrifice his one and only son. When asked to do something that was far beyond comprehension, far beyond what any of us, I think, have ever been asked to do, he obeyed. And this is to be an example here. That's what he's saying. Look as an example. Remember Abraham? When he made a promise to Abraham, a promise that he would have a son? And it took years for that to happen. And we grew, well, they grew weary. Sarah did anyway, for sure. And said, this is never going to happen. Unless we put our effort into it, it's not going to happen. So go sleep with my maidservant Hagar. We're going to make this promise happen. But he said you gotta patiently endure. And then we could talk a lot about Isaac and, and him being a picture of Jesus, Yeshua, you know, coming down the mountain after three days, receiving, you know, being dead somewhat, the New Testament says, but in here in Hebrews actually. Um, Matter of fact, let's just move on and talk about it. Verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. You know, I always thought when I was younger, and when I'd read that story of Abraham and Sarah, or Abraham and Isaac, that I just thought, what was going through Abraham's he- head? God made a promise that uh, y- 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 you're going to have a son, and then he gives you this son, and then he says, go kill the son. In Jasher,
1: I think his birth, you have your reading in the supper? Could be. Yeah, yeah. Isaac was, knew Isaac I willingly, yeah.
0: which is a picture of Yeshua.
1: Yeah, Where I am. So yeah. isn't was, that something? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I guess
0: so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so what we're seeing is a faith that is remarkable to me. This verse makes the whole story of Abraham way more impressive than just reading it in Genesis to me. Because what it's saying is that God had made a promise Abraham believed that promise so much that he was thinking, well, God told me to go kill him, so I'll kill him, but he's going to have to rise from the dead because God made a promise. Now that's faith. Who of you, if God said go kill your child, would I? wouldn't. I mean, I would have to absolutely 100% know that was God, and I can't find any way that I could confirm that that was God telling me to do that. And yet, this is the faith Abraham had. So much so, that just because God said it, I'll do it. But he reasoned, yeah, I'm gonna kill Isaac, but he will be resurrected, because God made me a promise. And here we are, we don't even really wanna believe that our prayers can be effective. We don't wanna believe that fasting is gonna make a difference. We don't wanna believe that God's gonna take care of us during all of these trials that we're going to have to fight this battle ourselves, We're a bunch of Hagar's. God promises he's going to be with us no matter what, even if it means death. And we say, well, I better get my guns, I better get my food, I better get my ammo, I better get my spare, you know, bunker, whatever the case might be. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's not wisdom in having that. I think there is, and we should have preparations. But that is not where our faith needs to lie.
1: Yeah. About communicate. You need to be there. You got to communicate. But yeah, so you feel like you want to hear back. But I always have that fear, like you said. Is it just you know like God talking to you, or you thinking what
0: God would say? Yeah. You know that.
1: Yeah. And so there's this round and round and round. And round
0: like, yeah, and I think it's kind of like my dream. Like I said, I'm not. I didn't want to push it on you, but for me, I know that was God speaking to me. I just, I, I've always known that the guy that had that dream, he said, I know God's voice. I know when he's speaking to me.
1: Well, and Abraham had several encounters with the angel of the Lord. Or with,
0: face-to-face yeah, encounters. Or stop,
1: or whatever you want to call it. I mean, he had yep. several interactions face-to-face.
0: Yeah, he had a relationship.
1: Yeah, he knew that this is not
0: just something yep. else, you know.
1: Or he go ahead and let's yep. But bottom line <laughs>
0: is, <laughs> I'll be honest that I've got enough of a relationship with Jesus that I know that his word is true so that I can take his promises to the bank. To me, I have enough of a relationship with that and his word that it would be just as... It would give me no more confidence if he came to me and said something face-to-face. Now, would I love to see that? Absolutely. Would I like to have him get more specific in things? Absolutely. But my relationship with him is enough that I'm telling you that those promises in his word are as sure as if he told it to me face to face. And we need to get to that place. Continuing on in our text here in Hebrews 6, verse 16. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, can't fail, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. In other words, this is all basically saying you can trust God. He can't lie. Two immutable things, that basically refers to an oath. Okay, In the Old Testament, either Leviticus or Deuteronomy, it, it even says that by two or three witnesses, okay, it is a sure thing. And so he's saying he confirmed it by oath, that by two immutable things... It's impossible for God to lie. You can trust it. You can take it to the bank. The Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run into it. We can count on that. That's when we who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. We all have hope in these strange times today. We, we, we should have His promises are so clear over and over. It continues in verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. And I love this metaphor of an anchor because God's word is sure and solid. What is an anchor? An anchor is what keeps you from moving. It holds you in one place. You don't see it. It's under the water there, but you have confidence and faith that it's supposed to hold you there. And that's what our faith is. It may not be something that we can be be tangible, but our hope is an anchor to keep us from being swayed, to keep us, when the world falls apart, to be able to have a smile on our face still. Because... We belong to the Lord. And so I I just love that. It goes, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil, where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Um, An anchor of the soul, which enters the presence behind the veil, what that is is what was behind the veil in the tabernacle. You had the outer court, where the bra- brazen laver was and the altar, the bronze altar, and then you went into the holy place, which we had symbols of prayer, which was uh, the altar of incense, a symbol of communing with God, the table of showbread, and a symbol of God's word, the light of the word, the light of the world, Jesus, in the menorah, the the lampstand. Then there was a veil that separated that to the most holy place. And so going in behind the veil, what was there? The Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat, the atonement cover, the throne of God. The cherubim were there, which are always in God's presence at his throne. This is where God would come and meet with the people the high priest, once a year on the Day of Atonement, that's the only day they went in there. And they could go in, and it would be filled with smoke and whatnot, and God would meet with them. So, in essence, what he's saying is this hope, our anchor, it meets, you want to have a relationship with God? You want to meet with Him face to face? You go behind the veil to His very throne room, His very Presence. And our hope and trust and faith in Him is what gets us in there. Where the forerunner has entered for us. He's not talking about the high priest. He's talking about the high priest, Yeshua, Jesus. Remember when He died on the cross, what happened? The veil opened up, giving us access into the most holy place. Becoming our high priest forever. Not just any high priest but a priest that was in an order not of Aaron, but in an order of Melchizedek, a completely different priesthood than the order of Aaron. And Hebrews is going to get into this more and more, and I love it because it's going to show that the Aaronic priesthood was faulty. And I think that's why we read things about Eli in the Old Testament as an example. Eli, you know, fat, sluggish, dull of hearing, tips over, breaks his neck, he considered his sons more holy than God. We see over and over the fault that there are many priests who don't even follow God. And I think that was all a foreshadow showing that the priesthood under the old covenant was going to be faulty, that there needed to be something better. That wasn't the final answer. But Yeshua will be because he comes in the priesthood of Melchizedek. So, we get to chapter 7, breaking into that. It says, For this Melchizedek, very strange figure that we see hardly at all in the Old Testament, in Psalm 110 and in Genesis, and that's it. He says, King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated King of Righteousness, And then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. His name, king of righteousness. King of Salem. Salem is Jerusalem. Yerushalem. That's where we get it from. And it is the same place. Priest of the Most High. So not just priest of some godliness, but of the creator Elohim.
1: So does this, sorry, does this put to rest the argument or conversation that maybe this was uh, Seth, was it? That a lot of people say that Melchizedek was Seth, walking around, he had no beginning it. like, clearly it states in here he had no geneal- genealogy, he had no mother father, he had no
0: beginning or anything. Yeah.
1: Like, what, what do you say about some That's of that?
0: A, Yeah, there are, the Orthodox Jews try to say that this Melchizedek was Shem. I do not believe that at all. The timing does not fit. Um, one of the reasons that I believe that that has come about is because of trying to show that Yeshua was not the Messiah. I, there is, um, If you do a, a Google YouTube search, YouTube search for Nathan H. 83... Nathan H. 83. He's got maybe five, six really good videos that it will deal. One is, like, you'll see pictures of pyramids. Uh, one talks about, you know, the Israelites not being slaves for 400 years. Um, I wrote about that years and years ago in a newsletter, and he did ten times better job than I did in my newsletter on it, just really unveiling it all. Um, and he's got one that will... One of those... I think maybe the flood one is going to deal with this in particular. And I think he does a really good job of just showing that this is something that the Orthodox Jews had added in to try to discredit that Yeshua could be the Messiah, the high priest. So, that's my opinion. So, This Melchizedek obviously is prophetic of the Messiah when we read about it in Genesis. Genesis chapter 14. The only time that we see Melchizedek interacting with a human being at all is here with Abraham. The only time we see him is in this little short part in Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham comes and meets him. And we see that he's greater than Abraham because... He blesses Abraham, and the greater blesses the lesser. We see that Abraham is going to tithe. And we're going to go look in Genesis 14 because I think it's vital to understand some of these things to really unwrap who this Melchizedek truly is. And uh, so let's just go there here. Genesis 14:18 says, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, when, that, when you hear that, two things ought to come to your mind. Passover, communion. Really, it's kind of the same thing. But that's really what... You know, today when churches do communion, they're, typically it's what... On the night Jesus was betrayed. Well, on that night, they were celebrating the Passover meal. The disciples said, I eagerly desire to eat this Passover with you. Okay? So your mind ought to go to Passover. This is something unique. This is something with a relationship with God and his people. Um, But Melchizedek is bringing it out to share with Abraham, which ultimately is all of Israel, because Israel would be in his loins, which we're going to see. And then, as I said, he gives him a blessing. This is exactly what Yeshua Jesus does at Passover. He distributes bread and wine, and then he blesses them. Melchizedek does that here with Abraham and then it goes on and it says in verse 19 and he blessed him and he said blessed be Abram of God most high possessor of heaven and earth and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand and he gave him a tithe of all literally a tenth of all this is the first time tithing is mentioned in scripture Now, let me ask you, is this before the Aaronic priesthood, before Mount Sinai, before Leviticus? Yes, it is. Tithing is not a Levitical command. It was there prior to. Okay? So, some say that you don't need to tithe because it's just an Old Testament thing. It only refers to agriculture. All kinds of excuses not to tithe. Uh, uh, or on the flip side you need to tithe so that you can get back that God's going to match what you give and overflow and that it's you know this prosperity gospel of tithe so that you get now I'm not saying that you aren't blessed you will be blessed when you tithe God promises that in Malachi right Uh, let's look at that will a man rob God yet you have robbed me but you say, in what, have, what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. So is it biblical to tithe? Yeah. I'll tell you one thing. You are not going to rob God and get away with it. I'm not talking salvation here. I'm just saying don't expect God not to see it. Don't expect God not to... uh, I don't want to say disappointed, but you know what I mean. God's watching. He sees. Proverbs 3.9 says, Honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. So how do we honor God according to this passage? One way we honor God. Yeah. With our possessions we honor God. What we give, how we use them, what you bring into your home, Okay, you can bring a TV into your home and you can honor God with it or you can curse God with it. Bring curses into your home with it. So, the concept here though of acknowledging God as our provider is so important. Um, But anyway, going back to, to Abraham, he was tithing Long before Mount Sinai. And I want you to see that, but he was tithing to Melchizedek. You tithe really ultimately to God and honor God with it. This is what he was doing. I am convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt in my mind that Melchizedek is Yeshua. I believe that we find Jesus in the Old Testament many times. He just wasn't called Yeshua back then because, you see, that wasn't his role back then. That he comes as an angel of the Lord. But in the New Testament, he came as Yeshua. He came in the flesh in a, in a different way, but it was God. In the flesh, yeah. yeah. So Abraham's not the only one who ties before Mount Sinai. Genesis 28:22 This stone which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house and of all that you will give me I will surely give a tenth to you. So here's Jacob saying, I'm going to tie, I'm going to give it to God. Now, there's so much that I would love to share here tonight with you, but I'm going to have to it's a whole message in itself that someday I'll do with this stone. Honestly, I think this stone might be, in some senses, Yeshua. Just as much as the stone that followed them in the wilderness was Yeshua. Remember when they got water from the rock in the wilderness? This is right after they leave Egypt. Where do they get water for the 40 years then? After they leave that spot, where do they get their water for the next 40 years? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 10 says they all drank from the same spirit, ate from the same spiritual food, and drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. The Bible tells me that was Christ. Now, I know we don't really think of it that but it's what God's word says. The living water was being given to these Israelites. And by the way, even when you read in the Talmud, the Jews talk about this, it's insane. Because they they talk about this rock following them, and you're going, what? And then you go and you read 1 Corinthians 10, and it's like, whoa, they were right. It did follow them. So it's just crazy, but God will never leave you, He will never forsake you. So, anyway, here, it isn't a rock that He sticks under His head, it is the rock. And I kind of threw this out when we went to Israel just a little bit. I'll just give you just a little taste of it without giving you the whole message. But uh, the stone, Avon, in Hebrew, Hashatia, Avon Hashatiah is the phrase that is used for this stone. It's called the foundation stones. And even the Jews of today say that this wasn't just an ordinary rock, but it was the rock, the foundation stone. And that foundation stone Is in the Dome of the Rock, the temple there, they call it Avon Hashatia, and it's also called the Pierced Stone. Why is it called the Pierced? Because there's a hole in it. Because it was probably once a uh, what's what do you call that? Help me out. My word left me. A grain, yeah, a millstone, but not just a millstone, but a threshing floor. And, but anyway there are so many connections here the Jews see this rock as a picture of the Messiah and by the way what does Jacob do with it in the next morning he anoints it with oil the word anoint comes from the word Mashiach which is what we call Christ the word Christ is Mashiach the anointed one so the Jews see this as a, as a picture of the Messiah but anyway that's not tonight's message But we see that he is tithing at this point to the Lord. I want to take you to the first century, uh, D.K. It's basically an early first century um, fragments that have been found of what the early church was believing and and following. And so this is really, uh, this gives us an idea of what the early church did in, in a lot of ways a really fascinating, amazing document, and, and it's a legitimate one. It's, it's history, but uh, nonetheless it shows us what the church was doing in the first century. And in Didache 13, verse 5, it says, If thou makest bread, take the first fruit and give according to the commandment. In like manner, when thou opens a jar of wine or oil, take the first fruit and give to the prophets. Yes, and of money and raiment and every possession, take the first fruit, as shall seem good to thee, to thee and give commandment." In other words, I'm just showing you this because I want you to see that even the early church was considering tithing, uh, not just from agriculture. It wasn't just for the church either. It was for the prophets, the priests, the Levites, etc. Now let me ask you, if you were the devil, who would you want to get rid of in the church? The preacher, the pastor, the the elders, the leaders, right? They're the ones that you want to go after. You get the leader, everything else falls. But notice it was a tithe of not just your money, it was of every possession, is what they said here in the early church. I want to take you to Nehemiah, because I'm going to build on this a little bit. In chapter 13, verse 10, Nehemiah is going to see that when the Levites were not getting their tithe, that God's house was being forsaken. He says, I also realized that the portion for the Levites had not been given them. That's part of the tithe. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. They weren't making money or they didn't have money to live on, so they had to go get another job. So I contended with the rulers and said, "Why is the house of God forsaken?" and I gathered them together and set them in their place. 2 Chronicles verse 31 or chapter 31 verse 4 says, "Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites." that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. So here we see the kings that were godly. He says he commanded the people to tithe ultimately, to the priests and to the Levites. Why? So that they could devote themselves to God's word, to know it, to study it. Today, when you go to Israel, there are a lot of Jews who that is all they do for a living is study the Word of God. That's it. All day, every day. Just studying God's Word. Malachi 2 verse 6 says, The law of truth was in his mouth and injustice was not found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity and he turned many away from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should keep knowledge, and people should seek the law from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. In other words, these priests were to study the law because people were going to come to them to know what God said. Very important. He was a messenger from God. 1 Corinthians, not first four, but 1 Corinthians 9.14 says, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So in the New Testament we see this as well. Now, I really kind of like this. And you know, I'll tell you why, and this might sound bad, but I'm just going to be upfront and honest with you. You know, in ministry, as I am, sometimes I feel bad when people will donate money to our ministry because I just don't feel worthy of it. And part of that is because I love doing what I'm doing. And I go out and I, I preach there at the river. I I love it. Why should I get paid for that? You know, why should people donate and help for that? Because this is... I'm having fun. I'm doing what I love.
1: You're blessing them and they want to bless you.
0: Well, and I know that's true, but I can't help but sometimes feel guilty because of it. And there's that and the other thing is this, is yeah, I feel like I don't ever want to charge for the gospel. That was one of the reasons that we did not charge for people to go through the museum. Is, it's like, I don't want to charge for the gospel, but to offer it free of charge. And so I've never had a mandatory fee. Well, I have to say this help me a little bit and like i said maybe i'm not the person to be talking about it but i'm just giving you my when i was studying this it it spoke to me because of that these men were devoted to studying the scripture these levites these priests and devoted to to giving god's word and helping others along in their walk to understand the lord their relationship with the lord Because he says, even so the prophets, the prophets were also supposed to receive of this tithe. And so, when I looked at it from the perspective of the devil for the first time, it made sense to me. Because when Nehemiah went in and said, the Lord's house is forsaken because... They're out having to work. They're not studying. You're not getting your word. It, I realized that's exactly what the devil wants. The devil wants those good preachers who are standing on the word of God, who are willing to say things that most aren't willing to say. He wants them to be destroyed. He wants them not to have time to be in the word of God. He wants them to get distracted with the cares of the world. It's not just a money thing. He wants it to be, you know, pastors that have to do everything. Okay? I mean, there's a lot of ways outside of the money thing here. Anything to do to keep them from being in the Word because they are the ones that are going to share it with the, the people. And this is the first time I had ever looked at tithing from the devil's perspective that if you want to take down the house of God, take down those preachers who honestly are probably the ones who don't have the large churches and lots of money. And so I looked at this and I thought, we need to support those pastors, those priests, whatever you want to call them that are out there, that are taking a stand that is not popular today? Mm-hmm. Raise your hand. What's that? Raise your hand. Well, I'm not <laughs> going <laughs> to... I'm just saying there are a number of people that come to my mind when I was studying this that it's like, yes. And it it, it makes giving a joy as well, too. in, in not to say that it... You know, but there are times giving is not a joy for me because I'm so fed up with what's going on in some cases that, you know, I just don't really like it. Um, But when I thought about this or, you know, when this was presented for the first time, it's like, wow. You know, that is important that we recognize and maybe even search for people who are teaching truth, not this fluff, not these false prophets, but those that are teaching truth. We need to support them. And so that's basically kind of, I know we kind of got off there because of Melchizedek, um, but because we see Abraham tithing till Melchizedek, We're going to see that there's much more to this Melchizedek as we continue uh, next week. There's going to be a change of the priesthood. And you cannot even begin to imagine how radical of a message this is. It would be as radical as us going to the churches and say, all right, no more. We're closing all Sunday worship down. We're all going to move it to Saturday, the the real Sabbath. Um, We're going to... Um, not meet in buildings anymore. Okay, I mean, an absolute turnaround of everything you've ever known in the church. It would be that radical. Because, keep in mind, he is going to say there's a change in the priesthood, but the priesthood that is going right now while this book of Hebrews is being written, there's a temple still standing, there are priests and Levites that are offering sacrifices at that temple the very time he is writing this stuff down so he is coming and absolutely turning the religious system upside down here in this book of hebrews especially starting here now as we're going to get into this melchizedek and this new covenant so i'm going to leave you with that teaser but uh, any other thoughts or questions here what we've talked about here tonight then is there any other historical documents or trails regarding Melchizedek that we reference? Does Jasher talk about Melchizedek? I can't remember. I, none are coming to my mind, no.
1: So, literally, we just have these tiny three references of Melchizedek
0: Psalm 110, Genesis 14, and Hebrews. That's it. But, as you'll see, he has no mother, he has no father, no genealogy. Like you said, Shem has a genealogy. He has a mother, he has a father. He has no beginning or end. That's eternal. That's an eternal God. It has to be Yeshua. And, here's a very important point, too, that I want you to think about. We often think, okay, well, we're in a New Testament church. Then there's the Old Testament church. I don't look at it in the Bible that way. I believe the New Testament was already in the Old Testament before the Levitical priesthood. When you think of Old Testament, you think Mount Sinai. Okay, That's a couple thousand years after creation already. What was... Abraham, before the law came, before Mount Sinai, before the Aaronic priesthood, before the book of Leviticus, before the book of, of Exodus, Deuteronomy, how was he saved? Faith. By faith. faith. Romans 4. Okay, Was Abraham saved before he was circumcised or after circumcised? He was righteous not after, but before he was circumcised. Even circumcision hadn't been given, and he was saved by Faith. How are we saved today? Faith. Period. I believe from the moment of creation all the way up through... Because Melchizedek Melchizedek is a priest. A priest of what? Of God Most High. Christianity, for lack of a better word. So from Adam all the way up here through Abraham, all the way up to Mount Sinai, we have a rule system, uh, a religion that is Melchizedek, which is how it started. Then we have the law and we had this Aaronic priesthood that came in. And then Yeshua comes and where does it go back to? To the thing that we had to begin with. It's almost, for lack of better words, maybe this isn't the best way to look at it, but New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament. So, this Melchizedek that we're getting into here is huge. Huge. So, that also might want you to think about maybe I shouldn't throw away all of that Old Testament stuff, too, because, you know, it sounds to me like a lot of it was under the message of grace. Righteousness by faith, alone. But we'll talk about those things. Anything else? You
1: were talking about the priest of Aaron. That's different than the Levites.
0: Aaron was a Levite. Yes. And so he became a descendant of Levi. But there were, among Levites, you had a high priest, then you had your regular priests, and then you just had Levites that weren't priests but they were still levites that would be the ones that would carry the uh, tabernacle of the Kohathites, and uh, but they, they but they weren't priests mm-hmm. yep but they were still levites which still served uh, in the temple of God so yeah not all levites are priests but all priests are levites But it the priests were doing what they were supposed to be doing that was the levites that weren't they weren't doing yes yep mm-hmm. and don't lose the fact then that this is also a picture Then we have become the priesthood under That's Yeshua. We're to be
1: doing.
0: Yeah, and we are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. Right. Anything else? You said Salem, you think, was Jerusalem at the time? Yeah. yeah I'm sure you, you plan on it. talk About this Melchizedek guy, but my curiosity
1: is like, well, he, he was the high priest in the city. And who, who are these people who lived here? How many thousands, or tens of thousands, or hundreds of thousands of people lived in this pre Abrahamic Christ worshiping city? And who are they? And
0: where did they come from? And where did they go? And I don't have that talked about, but that's a great question, so I'm going to answer that one now. Uh, in case you couldn't hear for the video or whatever here, who, this priest of Salem, who are these people he's priest of? I'm going to take you to Galatians 4 and to answer that one, where we see that God is comparing Hagar and Sarah. And he says, Hagar corresponds to this Jerusalem, the current Jerusalem, this present city. But Sarah represents the Jerusalem that is above, and she is free. There is an earthly Jerusalem, and there is a heavenly Jerusalem. Sarah is of the Jerusalem that is above. When we see in Revelation what comes down out of heaven, the new Jerusalem. And so, I think, with Melchizedek being Yeshua, that he is priest of the new Jerusalem, the heaven that is above, the Jerusalem that is above, that is free. That's my opinion. Because this is more spiritual, not, not terrestrial. So was Yeshua. He was in the physical form. So was, you know, God when he came to Abraham. He came in physical form. The the fancy theological term is a a theophany, that God appears in human form throughout the Old Testament many times. Yes, it (laughs) do you
1: think
0: CM specifically referred to in these texts as not speaking of a terrestrial location on this earth? I think it was a picture of the heavenly Jerusalem which is now yeshua has come and he is priest uh, in the priesthood of melchizedek hebrews is going to make that so clear as we continue so does that mean that he is a priest of the current Jerusalem now no he is a priest of the heavenly Jerusalem so that's that's how i see it a spiritual thing good question though glad you asked it